You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, just want to make sure everybody has a copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, there should be some either on the table or under the chairs around you. Feel free, uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word uh, on your for yourself, to take one of those as a gift from our church uh, to you. We are continuing this journey. We started a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you're new with us tonight, we are doing an overview of every book of the Bible. So we started uh, with Genesis, and Genesis took us two or three weeks because we divided it into sections. Uh, it won't be the case with every book of the Bible. Like tonight, we're going to look at uh, Exodus in one fell swoop, uh, and it's, we're going to cover everything that Exodus has to offer in one fell swoop. It's going to be great. Um, some folks like to do deep Bible study, and I think that's awesome. I encourage everyone to not just be a reader, but a student of God's Word. I encourage everybody to be a part of a small group of some sort. Uh, we have a small group that meets on Sunday mornings right before, um, right before worship. Uh, Michaela has a small group that meets on... Thursday nights at your apartment or the apartment complex. Linda Sinclair just started a Bible study fellowship on Sunday mornings, as well as Dave and Sue have a class that meets on Sunday mornings as well. So if you don't have one, uh, check one of these out if you don't like these. I'm sorry. And Cindy Miller has one on Sunday afternoons. Thanks. Sunday afternoons. Those are ladies. Both of yours are, are ladies as well as just ladies, and then the others are co-ed and things like that. If you can't find one that meets your time frame or that you like, feel free to talk to Karen about starting one. But for personal Bible study, um, I just want to share with you a little here and there some of the resources that I use. I do use the kind of the big, thicker commentaries that make me look like I went to seminary. Um, but the ones I use to, that I can actually understand on a regular basis are, uh, my favorites are Warren Wearsby. I'm a huge Warren Wearsby fan, and he has a series, uh, they're, they're basically commentaries that are called the B series, B-E, and then he, like this one's called Be Delivered, and it's Exodus. Uh, he has one of these for every book of the Bible. I love Warren Wearsby because he is a uh, scholar, but he's also a preacher, and he's also kind of like a normal guy. Uh, he just speaks language that I can understand. I'm pretty simple, uh, as Julie will attest to, and i got to have something that I can understand. The other one that I've really gotten into, they're a little bit newer, is this Christ-Centered Exposition series. Christ-Centered Exposition, and this is done by scholars as well. Dr. Danny Aiken is the general editor. He is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And then some of the other editors that he has co-authored these with are Tony Morita, David Platt, uh, and um, some of his boys as well. But these are two of my favorites just because, at least for me, and I'm just speaking to me, they're easy to understand. They're easy to follow along. It's, it's easy to dive that much deeper in because I understand where they're going because they approach it from a pastoral standpoint. So every now and then I like to share some of the resources that I use because I think they're, they're valuable. From 389 to 461 is the dates of a gentleman by the name of Patrick. And Patrick became St. Patrick of Ireland. For years, I lived in Savannah. I was born and raised in Savannah. And for years, Savannah was the capital of the St. Patrick's Day parade and festival. That was one of the things, like, we beat out New York. We beat out New Orleans for that. That was our claim to fame. Only thing I knew about St. About, um, Patrick's Day for the longest time was that at that point in time, McDonald's turned their um, milkshakes green. And I thought that was nasty. 
um, I didn't know anything until I went to seminary and learned the story behind St. Patrick. And you may already know this, but just to kind of let you know, St. Patrick was, or when he was just Patrick, when he was a boy, he was kidnapped by the Irish and he was forced to work uh, in, their, in their fields. He was actually originally from Britain. Uh, and so he was kidnapped and he was forced to do manual labor for years and years and years. And it was there that his faith uh, really became real and became his. And when he finally escaped, uh, he heard and, and grew into adulthood. He went to seminary, he went to college. He, he grew in his, his faith, he grew in his understanding of God's Word, and he accepted God's calling on his life to serve on the mission field. And then God told him where he was to go as a missionary. And it was back to Ireland to serve the very people that had kept him in captivity for years. And that is kind of the story, and that is why uh, today is, it, it is the real reason of why today is what it is. But there was this time where he escaped from captivity. And that kind of is a good little introduction into the book that we're going to look at today. So if you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, we're actually going to start at the tail end of Genesis, but let me catch you up to why we are in Exodus, not just because it is the second book, but somewhere about chapter 12 of Genesis, we meet a gentleman named Abraham. And it's through Abraham that God is going to make a covenant that through Abraham, God is going to create this incredible nation, this incredible people group. And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, have a child named Isaac. They have this child in their later years, and they have Isaac. And Isaac is the fulfillment of God's promise that this people, this nation, is going to come from Abraham himself. And then from Isaac, uh, Isaac marries Rebekah. They have twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is actually first, but through some deception and some trickery, uh, Jacob gets what really belongs to the firstborn. He gets the birthright, and he gets the blessing. And Jacob takes the lead as the individual that God is going to continue to fulfill the covenant through. Through Jacob, we have, uh, Jacob gets a name change. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And through him, you have the 12 tribes. Jacob, uh, Jacob either marries or has relationships with, uh, he's married to Leah and Rachel, but he has relationships with their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. Uh, they were lookers. They had to be. Uh, they have 12 sons, uh, and one of those sons became dad's favorite, and the favorite son of Jacob was Joseph. And because of Jacob's love for this son, and because of uh, his own, I guess, brashness and sharing uh, some visions and some dreams where the other brothers bow down to him, uh, the other brothers uh, schemed, and they were going to kill him until one of the other brothers stood up and said, no, we can't do that. And then they end up selling him into slavery. So Joseph goes from being his father's favorite to being in slavery, and then in that slavery position, uh, he actually works his way up in the ranks of Potiphar's house. But Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of some things that, um, that he didn't do, and it sends Joseph back to prison. So Joseph is on this roller coaster ride, uh, and then uh, he ascends again through the, the re being able to tell and interpret dreams. Uh, he rises in the Pharaoh's home. And that is actually a very significant uh, position for a lot of different reasons because one of the dreams that he has interpreted is that there's going to be seven years of abundance in the land and then there's going to be seven years of famine in the land. 
And so what he is able to do in his position is he is able to prepare the land for the famine so that when it hits, they are, they are prepared and they won't starve. So when the famine hits, Jacob brings his family, or actually the brothers come to Egypt in order to gain some of uh, the, the stock that has been saved up and they're, being, they're distributing it. And they, in this whole episode comes to a head because Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And then what happens at the tail end of, of Genesis chapter 50, if you look at, just turn to the left, probably one page, and look at Genesis chapter 50, uh, starting with verse 22. Starting with verse 22. It says, Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. So they've moved there, they've reconnected, they moved there to avoid the famine. Uh, they've not only been provided for, but Joseph reveals himself and the family is reunited. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The son of Manasseh's son, Makir, were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Jacob gets sold into slavery, when Jacob rises in Potiphar's house, when Jacob ascends to prison again, descends to prison again, and then when he rises up in Pharaoh, all of this is in Egypt, and that's where we are now. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. And that's what's going to bring us into Egypt as we enter the book of Exodus. Um, most scholars all agree that Moses is the author. And when people tell you that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, meaning the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's probably not that Moses sat down and penned every word. But Moses is the, the, the conduit through which God led his people. We'll meet Moses in a couple of chapters into Exodus. Moses probably handed most of this down by oral tradition, and other people wrote it for him. But most scholars believe that everything that came from the first five books um, started from the mouth of Moses. Jesus even says in Mark chapter 7, I think it's verse 10, when Moses said, and then he quotes Moses as having spoken the Pentateuch, uh, the verses from the Pentateuch. The word exodus comes from the Greek exodos, uh, which means, which literally means a, a going out or a departure. Uh, but if you were to summarize the book of Exodus into one word, and again, this is an overview. If you were to summarize the book of Exodus into one word, the word would be redemption. If you are writing one word down, and I hope you will take some notes tonight because I think you'll hear from each other, but if you were writing notes tonight, you would summarize the book of Exodus into one word, and that would be redemption. There's a scholar, Christopher Wright, and he wrote the following uh, in, in his, his book, The Mission of God. He said, how big is our gospel? If our gospel is the good news about God's redemption, then the question moves on to how big is our understanding of redemption? Mission clearly has to do with the redemptive work of God and our participation in making it known and leading people into the experience of it. The scope of our mission must reflect the scope of God's mission, which in turn will match the scale of God's redemptive work. So, where do we turn in the Bible for our understanding of redemption? It will not simply do to turn only and turn first to the New Testament. 
If you had asked a devout Israelite in the Old Testament, are you redeemed? The answer would have been a definitive yes. And if you had asked, how do you know? Then you had been taken aside, sat down, and told a very lengthy recounted story about the book and the story of the Exodus. For it is the Exodus that provided the primary model of God's idea of redemption. As I read through that quote, I thought, well, how so? How does the book of Exodus give us this, this model, this example for this idea of redemption? And I realize that like Israel, and if you are taking notes, this might be worth writing down. Like Israel, we are saved from something. So when what happens, and if you'll look with me now in, in, in Exodus, look in the first chapter of Exodus. The first couple of verses are just talking about the, the lineage of Jacob and Joseph dying. And then what happens with a, keep in mind, when Joseph is second in command in Egypt, Joseph is second in command. That means there's a Pharaoh right above him. There is a leader right above him. Verse 8, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. In, order, in other words, he doesn't know anything about Joseph, which means he also doesn't know anything about Joseph's God. He has no idea the influence that Joseph has had. He doesn't have any idea. He doesn't have any relationship. And therefore, he doesn't care. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. In other words, what's happening is the more they're put, the, they don't like the fact that the Israelites are growing in number. They don't want to be overtaken by the Israelites. So they decide to, to put more pressure on them. They decide to oppress them. They, they decide to enslave them. We're no longer living amongst each other and working things out. We're going to make you our slaves. And that ends up actually furthering the cause of the nation of Israel and doing the opposite of what Egypt was. But they're still living under oppression. Like Israel, so how does this relate to the story of redemption? Like Israel, we are saved from something. Like Israel was in slavery, we are in sin. But when you are saved from something, you are also saved for something. And they were saved, and we were, are saved to be to, for worship, and we were saved to be a witness. And that's where they were. The nation of Israel was supposed to be different from all the nations around them. They were supposed to be an example and a witness of the glory of God. They were supposed to be a shining example of God's incredibleness, of God's amazingness, of God's awesomeness. That's who they were supposed to be. And that's what we were supposed to be as well. Like Israel, we're not just saved from something. No, we're not just saved for something, but we are saved by something. And we actually sang it in that very first song. It's one of those things that when we sing the old hymns, we almost have to look at people who are unchurched or who don't know Jesus and kind of explain ourselves. Because if we were to sing the song, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? People that are new to church are going to think that's a little icky. No, I'm not. 
that's gross. I can remember the first time we sang that. I can remember, I can remember the first time my ten year, now 10-year-old ever heard that song. And I remember sitting there. I'm leading the song from the platform, and her face, as she's sitting right there, was like... And all of a sudden, she just went, ew. <laughs> Glad she didn't have a microphone at that moment, but everybody heard her nonetheless. But we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. In the Old Testament, you'll see that it is a literal lamb. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In the New Testament, we see it as Christ on the cross, a season that we're getting ready to celebrate and thank him for coming up, but we do celebrate it all the time. We've not only been saved from something, we've not only been saved for something, we've not only been saved by something, but we've also been saved to something. Israel is being saved as a part of the covenant, and Israel was given a guarantee of this place called the promised land, this Canaan. And you and I also have a promised land. It is the other side of life. It is an eternity in God's presence forever and ever. Again, this is an overview, so let me move kind of quickly. Exodus chapters 1 through 4, you're just getting to know Moses. You're getting to know the person of Moses. If you're new to Bible study, but you've heard the name Moses and you want to get to know his, his background, chapters 1 through 4 is about what we have of, of the background of Moses. It's very interesting. In Exodus chapters 4 through 6, we have Moses before Pharaoh. If you've got your Bibles, if somebody at your table would read uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse Verses, excuse me, Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. God has given uh, Moses this charge that he is going to lead the people. Uh, he's going to confront Pharaoh. He's going to tell Pharaoh uh, where he can, what he can do with, with his leadership, uh, what he can do with uh, what he's doing to the, Egyptian, with, to the Israelite people. And Moses is going to dismiss Pharaoh, and he's going to lead the people out. Uh, at least he's hoping that's how it's going to work. If somebody at your table would read chapter 6, verses two through five, and then somebody asks, answer question number one. We'll turn some music on and give you about a couple of minutes to look at that together. Go ahead.
All right, let me ask you, what, what is, what's the encouragement that God offers Moses? There's probably a couple of things you could say, but what, do you, what did you find? What is, what's the encouragement that God offers Moses? He reminds him of his covenant. The covenant has not stopped. The covenant wasn't just for Abraham, but it went through Isaac, it went to Jacob, it went to Joseph, and now it, Moses is being reminded of the covenant that has continued to stay firm. What else? Say it again. I know, I just wanted you to say it again. <laughs> but say it one more time. He, hears you. he, capital H, God, hears me. There could be no more three profound words you hear tonight. He hears you. He, it says, I think it says he heard the cries and groanings of his people. Folks, when we cry out to God, he hears us. He doesn't always meet us on our, our timetable. He doesn't always answer us in the way that we would see most fit. But he's God and he does hear us. And I don't know about you, but that humbles me immensely. In my mind, sometimes I think the God of the universe has bigger things to, to concern himself with. And I just think he should move right on past me. I'm not worthy of his time and attention. And then something comes along the way and he reminds me that he died on the cross for me. And he reminds me that he loves me. And he reminds me that when I cry out to him, he hears my voice. I just love that. I just love that. I want you to take just a couple of um, a couple of minutes. And I want you to actually, I want you to close your Bibles. Would you close your Bibles? You can keep it bookmarked right there if you want to, because I do not want you to use your Bibles for this. What happens is we have Moses confronting Pharaoh. So we've introduced ourselves. We've been introduced to Moses. Moses and God have this encounter. We call it the burning bush experience because there literally is a burning bush, but it's not consumed. It's just burning. We talked a lot about that last fall when we walked through our experiencing God study. And then God gives Moses this assignment. And then Moses is supposed to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, it's the whole let my people go moment. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, or if you've ever watched the Prince of Egypt uh, on, from DreamWorks. You have this, let my people go. Pharaoh doesn't want to do it. And then we have what are known as the 10 plagues. And before we talk about the 10 plagues, I want to give you about two minutes. And if you I want to see if you can, without looking in your Bibles, name all 10 and in the correct order on your market set, go. <laughs> That's so funny. Everybody's looking at me like this. You jerk. I don't care. Do it. Tracy's volunteering here.
About another minute. Thirty seconds. All right, I'm going to give them all to you, and I'll see how close you came. Okay, it's not trivia night, although you know I'll, I'll give points, and but it's like whose line is it anyway? The points don't matter. All right, the first one's water to blood. Anybody get that? Everybody get that? Okay, the second one's frogs, gnats, flies, the death of the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. So, well, I'm going to go all through them slowly. So, I, you may or may not, but I find this next little conversation we're getting ready to have absolutely fascinating. Because when, when I grew up, so I grew up in church, and I know not everybody did, but I grew up in church. I grew up a minister's kid. So I grew up in church. I was in church nine months before I ever came into the world. And so I, I grew up with the stories. And so I was familiar, I've, I've kind of always been familiar with Moses and the plagues and the Ten Commandments and things like that. But it wasn't until I, I got into seminary, and, and actually when I started teaching a, a class for, uh, for the men and women across the street who were in an addiction program, when I began to do more study about what was going on here. And this is absolutely fascinating to me, because we're, we're, where, where are we? For geographically speaking, where are we? We're in Egypt. The Egyptians, led by Pharaoh, do not believe in the one true God. They believe in a plethora of gods. So I want to walk through this, and I hope that you'll find this as interesting as I do. Chapter 7 through 11 are all about the 10 plagues. The water to blood, Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 26. This is a direct assault. The turning the water into blood is a direct assault on Ptah and Atum, who are the gods of creation. On Hapi, who is the god of the Nile, and of Anuket, who is the goddess of the Nile. 
There are very strategic, there are gods and goddesses, three gods, four gods and goddesses directly related to the Nile. But you notice that what happens at the end of that passage is that Pharaoh's magicians duplicate the same with their sorcery and their trickery. They, they duplicate. The frogs, that's Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. And uh, Heket, Heket is the god of fertility, of water, and renewal, which is what they associated frogs with, was fertility and renewal. So God's sending all these frogs. Again, it's a direct assault to the god that they are worshiping. And again, notice at the end of the second plague, the magicians duplicate it again with their sorcery and their magic. You get to number three. Uh, the gnats. And the gnats are probably closer, either closer to lice or mosquitoes. Uh, it's from the Hebrew... Everybody in the room just kind of went... <laughs> it's probably... in the Hebrew word actually means a fastening or attaching. These are bugs that are actually going to kind of get into you. Uh, it's chapter 8, verses 16 through, through 19. Um, and this is where, on the third one, the magicians are done. The magicians can no longer duplicate what's going on. Do you see what's happening? And you see Pharaoh's heart begins to harden with the first plague. And then the second plague, it gets even harder because his own magicians can do it. And he's thinking that this is just trickery. But all of a sudden you get to number three and his magicians can't do it anymore. So God's gotten their attention. God's got every player involved. And then God says, all right, now I'm going to take you out of the equation. Geg is the god of the earth. Kepera is the beetle god. And Thoth is the god of magic. So here's, we're now into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We're in eight of, of Egypt's gods. I'll keep going. Flies. The Hebrew word is actually swarms. And most scholars believe that they carried with them a disease similar to what we would call anthrax. Uh, Hathor is the god of love and protection. Wajet is the goddess of protection. And here's what happens in, in four, plague four. Okay, everything, first, second, and third plagues have affected everybody. Third plague, he pulls the magicians out of the, of the equation. Who's he pull out in fourth? The people living in Goshen, who are the Israelites. And now nothing is affecting the nation of Israel. Now it's just on to Egypt. See the progression. In chapter 5, it's death of the livestock. More than likely, it's, it's the anthrax, which was brought by the flies, that's now killing off the livestock. Apis is the cow-headed god. Bat is the goddess. She has a human face, but she's got cow ears and horns. Mehet wear it. She is uh, the mother of Ra, who we're going to meet in just a moment. By the power of Ra. For those of you remembering the Prince of Egypt, sorry. Here's the thing there. We're, we're halfway through. And if you go to Egypt and you go to some of the tombstone areas, when you go down there and you see uh, the tombs that were dedicated to leaders and kings, you will also see 60 to 70 tombs dedicated to certain bulls. Because these bulls were worshipped. These bulls, these cows were sacred. These were part of their gods. So who's God going after when he does this plague? He's not just killing uh, you know, the, the meat or anything like that. He's going after their gods. Very, oh, it's incredible. 
and notice that the plagues are getting worse. Number six, it's the boils. Again, it's a, it's a domino effect. You have the anthrax, whatever it was that was brought by the flies that killed the cows, and the cows have somehow, probably because of the worship, they've transmitted to human. Now you have the boils, and you have Isis, who is the god of medicine, and he's the God of peace. And then you have Imhotep, who is also the God of medicine. And then you have Sekhmet. And that's in that song too. And Sekhmet is the God, I'm going to say this right. He, he's got a lion, a lion head, but he is the God of plagues. He is their God of plagues. We are over halfway through now. And God is taking a full frontal assault to the God of plagues himself. In the, in the verses of uh, chapter 9, 13 through 35 is when you have the hail. It's usually uh, titled the hail, but it's really thunder, hail, and lightning. And because you have Newt, who is the goddess of the skies and the stars, the firmament. You have Shu, who is god of the air. You have Tefnut, who is the god goddess of water and moisture. And then you have Seth, who is their Thor, who is the god of thunder. And you have all of these right there in the middle of that little passage talking about the hail where you have this thunder, you have this hail, and you have this lightning, and it is a direct assault. It is God's, God, capital G, his direct assault to each of these gods, small g, of the Egypts. And we're getting worse because what does hail, and what does hail do? It damages, it destroys. We had to put a new roof and air conditioning units on this campus because of a hail, freakish hailstorm that came right before Julie and I got here. Hail destroys. So we've gone from, we've gone from not feeling well, we've, not, we've gone from our gods being hit, but now we're, it's damaging the things that we need, our homes, our crops, all that kind of stuff. Chapter 8 is the locusts. I mean, excuse me, the 8th plague is locusts. It's in chapter 10. And that is, here we go, the locusts are invading the crops and it's Sinahem. And he's the locust-headed God. He actually has a, whatever, uh, a, a, he looks like a locust. And he is literally, here is literally what he is. He is the God of protection over crops. They have created a God who protects their crops. And in this plague of locusts, God directly assaults this small g God. In nine, and this is again, I'm a kid, I know this story, but I'm growing up and I'm learning more and more. And then I get to seminary and I'm teaching this and I get to number nine, which is darkness. And at first I thought, that's just really cool. He's just creating darkness. He's putting the sun out for a time. By the power of Ra or Amen Re who is the God of the sun and of the created world. But even deeper than that, here, here's where we're going. Even deeper than that, this is, the, this is the second, this is the next in line to the ultimate worship mode. They worshiped the sun. The sunset meant death. The sunrise meant new life. The sunset meant we, 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 we are, we're dying. The sunrise meant resurrection. So they thought this could be the end. And every morning they thought they had been resurrected again to live. So they literally, they literally, not figuratively, they literally lived and died by the sun. So when darkness covers the land in Egypt, when God covers the land in darkness, the Egyptians literally feel like death is come upon them. And then we have the last plague which is the death of the firstborn. 
And this is God's full frontal assault on Pharaoh himself. Because whoever the Pharaoh was fully believed that he was immortal. Pharaoh believed that he was immortal and he would pass through his own son. But that Pharaohs were gods. And Pharaohs were to be not just served, but Pharaohs were to be worshipped as gods. You did not question a Pharaoh. You did not cross a Pharaoh. You did not stand up to a Pharaoh and tell him to let your people go. Why? Because I'm a Pharaoh and I'm a god. And what God does when he takes the firstborn is he points out to the reigning Pharaoh as I can stop this anytime I want to. Because you're not God and I am. What is this whole book about? This whole book's about redemption. But what we see here is God taking this time. Let me ask you a question to talk amongst yourselves there. Um, Question number, I think it's question number four. What do you believe? I'm going to give you about a minute. What do you believe were the purpose of the plagues? On your mark, get set, go. And do question number five while you're at it.
What do you believe were God's purposes with the plagues? Anybody? There's probably more than there's more than one answer here. So what do you what do you feel like God's purposes were with the plagues? Showing Pharaoh where the power lays. Somebody else. Shows Israel. I think we're. I think the nation of Israel is seeing their God on display. If if you're seeing your God do this, what what is that going to instill in you? A confidence, a confidence in your God. And let's be honest. As much faith as we would like to say that we have, when we see it, doesn't it build our confidence? Doesn't it build our faith? Absolutely. Why? Because we're human. We're on the side of life. We're also seeing God moving. I mean, that's just a purpose. Hey, I'm moving. He's, he's pushing the storyline. He's pushing the narrative that's happening here. You read a verse that may not have seemed like it applied, but Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One builds understanding. What does Pharaoh not have in the first nine plagues? He has no fear of the Lord. And it says that his heart is hardening, and he's saying, no, Pharaoh, let, let the, my people go. Let the nation of Israel go. And he's saying, no. Why? Because he does not fear. He does not awe. He does not respect. He does not revere the God of, of creation. And so he is making incredibly unwise choices. If we want to make wise choices, if we want to be a part of, I guess, the winning team is a way to say it, we need to fear the Lord. We need to have understanding of the Holy One. I'm going to keep moving for time's sake. Exodus chapters 12 through 15 is literally the Exodus. We get to the Red Sea, and we, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 14, uh, we get to the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army uh, following right behind. And if someone at your table would read verses 29 through 31 of chapter 14, verses 29 through 31 of chapter 14. Israel saw the great power, verse 31, that the Lord used against the Egyptians. The people feared. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. The Israel feared the Lord. And what did that allow them to do? Believe in Him as well as his servant, Moses. 
Their fear of the Lord gave them the willage and the knowledge and the understanding to believe in him and to follow Moses. And that's what continues to happen. In Exodus chapter 16 through 19, uh, we see God continue to provide. This is where you'll hear the story about like Moses hitting the water, uh, hitting the rock and the water coming out. It's where God provides the manna, which is kind of like bread. And then the quail fly into, you know, hey, eat us. And, uh, and that's how that plays out. God provides. And then Exodus chapter 20, and really Exodus chapter 20 through 24, Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. If that's ever hard for you to remember, just remember that Exodus is the second book. There are Ten Commandments. Ten times two is 20, just saying. Uh, it works with students sometimes. But Exodus chapter 20 is the, uh, is the Ten Commandments. And my question there is, what does this passage mean to its original audience? We've been, we started the year by looking at seven arrows, seven questions that would make Bible study easier. And I just asked myself, what does this passage mean to its original audience? When, when the Israelites are given these Ten Commandments, what, what, what does it mean to them? And what's happening is God is instructing, God is guiding the people that have been delivered and now need guidance about how they're supposed to live. What were you and I created for in the very first place? A relationship with God to worship him, to love him, to lo be loved on, on by him. We were created for relationship with him. And what God is doing with the, with the Ten Commandments and then the laws that he gives uh, after this is he is giving them rules and guidelines for holy living so that these sinful people can be in a relationship with holy God. I know that the, Levit the book of Leviticus is incredibly difficult to read through, but when you read through it with an understanding that it is God saying, if you want to be in a relationship with me, this is how you do it. And I'm enabling you, I'm guiding you, I'm giving you the opportunity to be in relationship with me. It gets kind of exciting. And that's through 24 that God is continuing to instruct about holy living. Chapters 25 through 31 uh, is when God provides the plans for the tabernacle and God plans for the priests and in God's plans for the ark. Let me just ask this as we kind of wrap up our time together. What is the whole purpose of the tabernacle and the ark. What did those two things represent? Say it again. His presence among the people. God gives them these instructions, very, very uh, in, intricate details about how to build this tabernacle, what the priests are supposed to wear, and how the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be created and drawn up. It's very detailed instructions, which we'll hear again in other books but it's all about being in the presence of God. Why? Because the whole book of Exodus is about one thing. It's about redemption. These people who were far from God, he's drawing them back close to himself. And it's not the worst summary of our lives either. And the thing about it is, is we don't need a tabernacle. We get a wonderful building. We don't need an Ark of the Covenant. We have scripture. We get to be in his presence. And he redeems us. And he redeems us for our good. And he redeems us for his glory. If there's one word that sums up the entire book of Exodus which is an incredible foreshadowing of the New Testament. It is the book of, it is the word 
redemption. I'm going to ask David to just turn on some music, and I'm going to ask us to pray together at our tables. I'm going to ask you to share some prayer requests, but one of those prayer requests I'm going to ask you to share with, and I'm going to ask, different, I'm going to ask people that are comfortable to pray, who in your life needs redemption? Go ahead, Davy. Who in your life needs redemption? Who are, who, whose salvation are we praying for? And just mention those names. If, if, you know, maybe we need to pray for you and your boldness to share with somebody. I, I'm, I, I was able to have a gospel conversation uh, Monday night and I missed an opportunity yesterday. So I just ask you to continue to pray for me that my eyes and my ears would be open, that I would be sensitive to the opportunities that the Lord puts in front of me. Not because I'm a pastor, not because I'm this pastor, but because I'm a Christ follower and I'm excited about Jesus and I wanna make sure that I take advantage of those opportunities to tell people about him. But I do want you to go around the table and just share some prayer requests. Maybe we can pray for each other's kids. Maybe we can pray for each other's parents. But I definitely want in the conversation for you to mention somebody that you're praying for, specifically that you're praying for their salvation, that they would get to know Jesus. So I'll give you some time to pray, and then I'll probably throw out some other things to pray for. So go ahead and start now. Talk and pray amongst yourselves, and we'll dedicate the rest of our evening together to prayer. so your table can, can support you in that as well.
praying for our senior adult revival that starts this Sunday night. Our pastors, Tim Williams, our worship leaders, Jan Freeman, and Wes Hampton is going to be our special guest. If you wouldn't mind praying for uh, the churches that are coming together for our senior adult revival. Sunday and our Easter Sunday services, our problem for our Good Friday, excuse me, our Good Friday and our Easter Sunday services. We'll actually get to have it this year. So would you just pray that the people that come into the room would feel welcomed, would feel loved, that the worship would be glorifying to God and that the word would be made clear. May that be, maybe even pray that that be the day of salvation for somebody. Would somebody at your table pray for Good Friday and Easter Sunday?
is real. We have been saved from something. Your people were saved from slavery. We have been saved from our sin. Like Israel, we have been saved for something. We have been saved to be a witness to our community, to our communities. We have been saved to worship you and to glorify you and to lift you high. Father, like Israel, we are saved by something. Theirs was the blood of a lamb. Ours is the blood of the lamb. So Father, Jesus, we just take just this minute right here to say thank you for your sacrifice. Would you just take a minute at your table and you can voice it out loud, you can voice it internally. Would you just thank Jesus for his sacrifice on the cross? And Father, like Israel, we have been saved to something. You talked to them about the promised land, about this land of Canaan, this land overflowing with milk and honey. For us, you have promised us an eternity in your presence. And like Israel, when you demonstrated yourself through the plagues, you demonstrated your power, you demonstrated your authority. They knew that you were in charge. And Father, we see your creation. We see your hand moving all around us. And Father, we just want you to know that we fear you. We're not necessarily afraid of you, but we reverence you. We are in awe and wonder of who you are. I'm so glad that I cannot explain who you are. I'm grateful that you are indescribable but I can throw out words. So can we just take 30 seconds and would you just decorate God with the adjectives that come to your mind and heart? Would you just tell him what you think of him for the next 30 seconds? You can do it verbally or you can do it internally. Would you just tell God how amazing and how awesome he is? What are words that come to mind when you think of God? And like Israel, God, you have redeemed us. You have saved us and you have given us a story of redemption and you desire to be in relationship with us and to utilize us for our good and for your glory that you might be made famous throughout the earth. So Father, whatever our spheres of influence are, whether it's our kids, whether it's our families, whether it's our neighborhoods, whether it is our friends at work, our friends at play, our friends at school, our friends at church, wherever we have an opportunity to brag on you, may our lives boast an incredible witness of your glory and your goodness. Because we ask it and we long for it in Jesus' name and for his sake, and we pray it, amen.